Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to Conversations with the Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This is going to be my second podcast uh, this week, focusing on the topic that's on everybody's mind. You guessed it, the coronavirus. As much as you are sick and tired of hearing of this, I hope today's podcast may provide you with information that may save a loved one's life. The topic today is going to be the innovative approach to treating COVID-19 with oral and IV vitamin combination therapies and oxygen use. The COVID-19 pandemic has tightened its grip on the United States and many other countries in the world. It has paralyzed societies into sheltering in place and business lockdowns. And the main reason being, one, the respiratory contagiousness of the of this illness. You know, it's estimated that one person infected can in fact spread it to three others. And unlike, you know, AIDS, which I, I trained in the 1980s, I mean, that was through sexual transmission or IV drug use. This is unfortunately just from breathing, coughing or sneezing, or even talking, they say. The other part of this, I think that's just so frightening to everyone, is that it's vigorous attack on the lungs that can lead to ventilator support. And I can tell you as a doctor, or as any person would say, that they dread the idea of being intubated and possibly dying hooked up to a machine. So this is where we are. And unfortunately, with all of our medical technology, we seem to be at the mercy of this virus. My guest today is uniquely positioned, and you'll see why, to give his insight how to best care for patients with all stages of COVID-19 infections. He is Dr. Paul Narek. He's the Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. For those of you who might not be aware, because they're not actually the most celebrated doctors, but critical care physicians that work in intensive care units of hospitals on a daily basis deal with the sickest patients in the hospital that need continuous monitoring. They are used to seeing patients with pneumonias or severe infections called sepsis in their units. But as has been written in many articles of late, New York critical care doctors and ER doctors have never seen so many patients present uh, to their units in such dire straits. I want to add that before I welcome Dr. Mack, that his unique position to comment on treating COVID-19 is not just from his pulmonary and critical care experience, but as you'll see from his unusual approach of using IV vitamins to help deteriorating patients in the past prevent intubation. So it's with my great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Paul Merrick to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Dean, for that introduction. Yes, you deserve it. I'm going to start out the first part from a quote that you have one of the papers that you sent me and that I actually saw from a friend of mine, Dr. Keith Berkowitz, who's also, I think, part of your consortium trying to tackle this problem from a certain perspective. But I love this quote, 
It's the kind of thing that shows your personality. If your quote says, if what you are doing ain't working, change what you are doing. So I, I really like the boldness in that statement. What did you, what did you really want? Why did you start the paper with that quote? Yeah, I think it's kind of important that, you know, doctors are often sheep or lemmings and just follow blindly. And I think people generally tend to do that. So we know from the experience in Italy that what they were doing just wasn't working. The mortality was exceedingly high. And I think the initial approach was, we're just going to support these people on ventilators and they're going to get better. And that approach led to an enormously high mortality. And we know that the same thing happened in Spain and the same thing has now happened in New York. So our traditional approach is just not working. It's simple as that. A recent paper published from New York showed that 86% of patients who landed on a ventilator died. That is truly astonishing. So what we're doing ain't working. So we have to do something else. Yeah, I said, that's right. I loved that approach. And, you know, I'll share something with you as well, too, because I think what you said makes so much sense. Because, you know, again, when I started hearing the reports, you know, that the governors and the hospitals were, we need more ventilators. We need, we need more ventilators. And I'm saying to myself, gosh, I remember when I trained in the AIDS epidemic in the late 1980s, early 1990s, especially in the 19, uh, late 1980s. Um, I had just gotten out of medical school and my first day on the ward at St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York City, I was taking care of 20 AIDS patients and they were deteriorating quickly because we had no treatments at that time. And even when I was rounding, when my rotation came for the ICU, the intensive care unit, and I saw these patients would go in, you know, they would have pneumocystis pneumonia. We didn't really have a treatment initially for that. And they would, you know, deteriorate and go on a ventilator. And these patients didn't get off because we didn't have a treatment for that pneumonia. It wasn't until, and we're going to get to some of your work, that it was very interesting that someone, I guess it was starting to circulate around because people were trying different things. They used a combination of not only Bactrim, but they also used cortisone, which was sort of counterintuitive, like giving cortisone to a patient that's got a compromised immune system. But that worked. It got them stable enough to get them off the ventilator. So my point, which I guess I know you're really making very boldly, is that just going on a ventilator is not real, you know, it's just prolonging the agony, unfortunately, in a lot of cases. Yeah, and in fact may make it worse because we know paradoxically that the ventilator itself causes lung injury. Right. And these patients already have primed lungs. Their lungs are inflamed. So it's likely that the ventilator-induced lung injury is exacerbated. So in fact, the ventilator is causing the disease you're trying to treat. So it becomes a complete vicious cycle. Did you get, I mean, look, again, your expertise is in critical care and as a pulmonologist, did you get a lot of, what's the best term? Did you get a lot of pushback? Pushback, yes. Doctors, from doctors and from government officials, like, how could you be saying this? It's almost like, you know, heresy. Yeah, so the pushback we've received is truly astonishing. And, you know, I, I felt or we felt we had an obligation to get the message out because people are dying needlessly. And we believe this needn't be so. But the problem is the pushback has been truly astonishing. I mean, people just do not believe what we have to say. 
to the extent that because we're using a vitamin, you know, people think that I'm some kind of a herbalist practicing alternative medicine or herbalistic medicine in the ICU. And they don't really understand the physiology and the science behind what we're doing. Right. You are really, as I mentioned in the introduction, uniquely qualified at this moment. Like you said, too, I've, look, my background is in immunology, but I also practice a lot of my, what I call functional medicine. I don't do herbology, but I like to use the latest natural treatments. And I've used IV vitamins in my practice for many years in New York. But I want to say this, why you are so uniquely qualified at this time to, to be talking about this, because in 2017, in fact, you caused quite a stir in the medical community by showing in a retrospective study at your hospital that patients in sepsis, and just so people, the listeners know, that's one of the most dire type of inflammation or infection that can occur that has very high mortality. You found in your work at the hospital that by giving patients IV vitamin C with IV thymine and IV hydrocortisone, that those patients did much better than patients that were treated either with cortisone alone or no therapy. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the, the crossover or similarity between bacterial sepsis and COVID, which is a viral disease, is truly remarkable. So in patients who have bacterial infection, it's not the bacteria which kills the host. And Osler commented on this 100 years ago. It's actually the host's immune response. So in most people who have a bacterial infection, for example, pneumonia, the reason they crash is because the host develops a very vigorous immune response against the bacteria. Now, for reasons which aren't clear, most viral infections don't do this. However, COVID is an exception. And in the later phases, which we'll talk about, it causes a profound host immune response, which is in fact quite similar to that of bacterial sepsis, but seems to be a lot worse. So there is, that's the kind of connection which made us consider this as a treatment modality. Yeah, what I love, you know, because I got your papers, and I actually you know I was so fortunate, as I said, I mentioned a, a colleague, a friend of mine here in New York, Keith Berkowitz, had sent me this EVMS critical management protocol. What I'll hope for our listeners, I'm sure they can probably get this online, but I'm also going to post it on my website. You had a beautiful curve that showed the different phases and stages. I'm just going to explain it for a moment to our listeners. And as I said, they'll be able to visualize it better when they see it and going to some of your really key points. So basically, at the start is what's called the incubation period. Typically, the first first day that you may have gotten infected from somebody to about the fifth day, roughly. That's an incubation period where patients typically don't have symptoms, but the virus is beginning to replicate. Then from day five, roughly to day 11, the viral replication is now starting to build up and patients can have a myriad of symptoms ranging from fever, fatigue, cough, headache, that loss of smell and taste, diarrhea. We're finding more and more symptoms. So that's what's going on in that, essentially that post first week time period. Then things start to get pretty serious and dangerous because from day, in some patients, that we should really emphasize that, in, by around day 11 or so, that's when the respiratory symptoms 
can start to kick in and the patients can feel profoundly shorter breath, even though they can, and we'll talk about this, even though they can be speaking and almost appearing normal, their oxygen levels plummet. And during this phase, you've labeled this phase the early pulmonary phase when the initial immunity is, is going on. Also, there's what they call coagulation or bleeding issues that can, can go on. And then you describe from days 14, essentially two weeks after the initial infection, to days 28 are probably the most critical in these patients if they're developing these respiratory symptoms because they can go into acute inflammation or what's referred to, I'm sure the listeners are starting to hear this now, cytokine storms. Cytokines are our body's inflammatory chemicals that are there to alert the immune system to go and destroy. But again, in certain situations like this novel coronavirus, it's going into hyperdrive. And I thought you had so many interesting ways of approaching this. So I don't know, would you like to comment at all on this course of the illness, if I maybe left something out or you think that should be noted? No, Dean, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think that many doctors and patients don't recognize that there are various phases of this disease and that each phase needs to be treated differently. And that, you know, it's very important to distinguish where the patient is in the natural history of this disease. And as you said, so we start off with a viral replication in the nasopharynx. And it can really replicate to enormously high concentrations. And that's why this virus is so infectious, because it reaches such high concentrations and therefore can be easily transmitted to other people. Many, most patients, though, the immune system manages to kick in and they get rid of the virus. So, so they're either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. But unfortunately, in about 20% of patients, they progress to become to, to the pulmonary phase. So we have the incubation period, which is asymptomatic, the early symptomatic phase with really flu-like symptoms. Many patients get better at home. However, what happens in a percentage of patients, about 20%, is you get really excessive viral replication. So the host's response can't control the virus. You have excessive replication, and then the virus tends to go into the lung, where it binds to receptors in the lung, and there it triggers an intense inflammatory response. It causes intense inflammation. So it becomes important. So the patients who develop respiratory or pulmonary symptoms are treated very differently to those that just have flu-like symptoms. And that's really a, a vital point to understand. And the second is it's quite fine for people to hunker down at home just with fever and headache and feeling kind of crappy. But once you develop pulmonary symptoms, that should be a red flag that things are not getting better and you need to come to hospital because I think many patients present to hospital too late, by which time the fire in the lung is out of control. And it's like a fire. The earlier you get the fire, the easier it is to put it out. The more rampant the fire, the more extensive the fire, the more difficult it is to put out. So it's absolutely critical that patients once they start developing respiratory symptoms, which really is shortness of breath, 
If you cannot get your breath or you're breathing heavily, you really got to move, move your butt to the hospital and be admitted at that time. That's a great point because, you know, again, I'm reading so many cases and stories by doctors that are writing articles, you know, in the New York Times, in other late magazines. I, I think you learn so much, even myself as a doctor. And one of the stories I was just reading was really interesting. It was one of the hospitals in Queens, which has been overwhelmed, you know, with the COVID virus. But they mentioned that a patient came in one or two times during the week. He had a little bit of a cough, a little bit of shortness of breath, and they sent him home twice. You know, they said, go home and, you know, tough it out at home. And then he came back a third time. And again, they said, okay, go to the bed, you know, lay there, we'll watch you a little bit. He was talking away, but, you know, and he, you know, he wasn't in really distress. And then all of a sudden he goes, you know, I want to go to the bathroom. So he goes to the bathroom, and then they noticed after about 15 minutes he didn't come back. And they found him. He was in respiratory arrest in the bathroom. So to go to your point, this is a very insidious, aggressive uh, infection. And, you know, one of the things I read was really interesting by a, an amazing emergency room doctor up in New Hampshire, actually Richard Levitin, I have to give him some credit. He trained at Bellevue Hospital here in New York many years ago, and he came back to help out during this crisis from New Hampshire. And in an article that he wrote in the New York Times, which I thought was great, was how do we get ahead of COVID-19? He suggested that patients should have early on pulse oximeters to monitor their oxygen levels. And these aren't expensive devices that people could read. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And people have asked me and I've thought about it. And you know what? I think it plays a role. So I wouldn't rely entirely on the pulse oximeter, but I think they are cheap uh, and they're reasonably accurate. So I think someone who has COVID that it's not a bad idea that they monitor the pulse oximeter, which is the level of oxygen in the blood. And once it starts to fall, you're in trouble. So I think we need ways of sorting out these patients earlier on before they really deteriorate. That seems to be the key. So, you know, these portable pulse oximeters are reasonably accurate and cheap and would seem, you know, one thing to follow. Obviously, there are other signs that you need to follow. I mean, if the patient's pulse ox is falling, you're in trouble. But if they're also having difficulty breathing, they can't catch their breath, those are other important signs. So, you know, I, I think it sounds like a good idea. Right. I, 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 mean, I agree with you. I mean, I know I was saying my earlier podcast thing on testing, clinical input from a, a good clinician is really important. I mean, you, just, you don't want to do this all by yourself. So, yeah, you know, I think the point, though, is that the general public don't really understand this disease. And I think there's been a failure of communication. And I think that's a major issue because it creates fear and uncertainty and anxiety. So I think if we had done a better job in explaining exactly what COVID is, what does it do to the patient? How does it work? Folks would understand it better. They would then know when to stay at home and what to do at home and they went to come to hospital. But I think that's, that message has been lost. I, I agree with you. You know, and I think the other frustration, too, is the whole thing about doing nothing. You know, I'll, I'll just share something with you. I'm a, I'm a big CNN fan, I have, I have to admit it. And I, when I saw that Chris Cuomo, who's got one of the primetime slots, became infected with the COVID-19 virus, and I was curious what they were doing to help him. And he was hunkered down in his basement. 
basically saying, oh, he's a, he's a healthy guy overall. Um, but, you know, I was actually trying to reach out to him after I saw your work because, you know, to me, it made so much sense. So I want to just go through again, as we're going to be doing more testing and people are identified as ha- being infected, some of the, the recommendations that you have, and I'm, I may want to ask you like specific things. So we went through the different stages. So I want to just jump in at the symptomatic stage. And as you mentioned in one of your, your protocol, in the early, the mildly symptomatic stage, which I would assume is essentially, you know, you're having fevers, you feel fatigued, you know, maybe you have a headache, you know, we're not in that shortness of breath phase yet. So you recommended vitamin C, 500 milligrams twice a day with quercetin, which is known to help augment vitamin C. You mentioned zinc, 75 to 100 milligrams. Why those vitamins and minerals? What, what do you feel, you know, and what are you basing that on? Yeah, so, you know, as I said in the disclaimer, you know, this is based on basic principles and scientific inference, and that this isn't based on hard scientific data as a first point. But these are very benign, innocuous therapies that I think may have an important role. So, you know, we can start with vitamin C. What folks really don't know, and most doctors don't know, is I call it ascorbic acid, which is a stress hormone. So all species on this planet, except for humans, guinea pigs, and a few fish, make vitamin C during stress. So when the organism is stressed, usually by an infection, it makes vitamin C. It secretes it from the adrenal gland, and it secretes it from the liver. So it is a stress hormone. It helps the body fight infection. Humans, for some reason, have lost the gene to make vitamin C. So therefore, what happens when you're stressed is the vitamin C levels go down dramatically. And in fact, we know with COVID, in those patients we've tried to measure it, it's unmeasurable. These people have unmeasurable vitamin C levels. Well, that's very important. I I had never heard that. Wow. So you see, that's why, you know, if you understand the physiology, then you can see why this makes sense. But people criticize us without actually understanding the physiology. And that's well, you're what, not alone. Linus Pauling, who was one of my heroes <laughs> and a Nobel Prize winner twice, took quite a lot of uh, abuse for recommending his, his uh, you know, recommendations of, of vitamin C for preventing all kinds of viral infections. So I, but I love your explanation. I, I think it's fascinating and makes so much sense. So, so go on. I'm, you have me on the edge of my seat right now. So, so the next is quercetin, which is a plant phytochemical. It's found in many plants, mostly like in apples. So that's why, you know, take an apple a day, keep the doctor away. So quercetin actually is interesting. It's an antioxidant, but vitamin C actually pr- allows quercetin to act efficiently. So they need to be taken together. And quercetin has many biological functions. One of it actually has been shown to inhibit the virus. So it actually inhibits viral replication. The other is it has an effect on inflammation and also prevents hypercoagulation. So while there's less data on quercetin, it's, you know, it's a plant phytochemical. No one's ever died from eating apples. So you know, it probably acts synergistically with vitamin C. We think it does. It makes biological sense, but we have no absolute proof. 
The next is zinc. So zinc, we know patients who are zinc deficient, so these are malnourished patients and elderly patients who have a poor diet, have impaired immunity. It's a well-known factor. So it impairs the ability of your immune cells to fight infection. It just so happens that zinc inhibits viral replication. So um, the zinc actually affects the ability of the virus to replicate intracellularly. The problem with zinc is it doesn't get into the cell that easily. So what you need is what's called a zinc ionophore, which helps the zinc get into the cell. It just so happens that quercetin is a zinc ionophore. So these, these molecules act together. It's like, it's like a recipe. You know, you're making a cake, and it's not one recipe. It's all of them acting together to create this, you know, this really interesting selection of, of chemicals. You know, it's unfortunate that, that President Trump wasn't listening, or I hope he's listening to this, because if he had suggested this instead of what else he had suggested, he'd be looking quite good right now. <laughs> so, yeah, and you, okay. and you know, the, this, these are all completely safe. Right. Well, <laughs> you won't have any governors saying, oh, don't take that. You know, right. So this no, is the point where, you know, where you say, what do you have to lose? That's the way yeah. I'm thinking about this right now. Okay. So you have nothing to lose, and you have potentially a lot to gain. The other interesting thing is vitamin D. So we've just had a paper published, which is truly, I think, astonishingly interesting. So what we did is we looked at the mortality in the U.S. We compared the northern states versus the southern states. It just so happens that if you live north of 40 degrees latitude, 40 degrees latitude really bisects the country in two. What happens above 40 degrees latitude is the sun's UV rays don't reach the surface of the earth. You need UVB to make vitamin D. You don't get vitamin D from the diet. You make it from the sun. So it appears that people who live in the more northern states are likely to have lower vitamin D levels. So what we showed was that the mortality rate was almost double if you lived in northern states as opposed to southern states. And it just so happens that vitamin D prevents this inflammatory storm. If you take vitamin D, it down-regulates the immune system and prevents this inflammatory storm. So they all kind of work together. Let me ask you about the vitamin D. You know, I, I really like vitamin D a lot. And I do recommend to my patients, typically in about that 4,000 unit range, just in general. It's been also shown to have decreased allergies and boost the immune system. But I just, I'm going to just to be a little bit devil's advocate. Do you think that those pe people that are in the Southern states have higher vitamin, you know, they obviously, okay, they're going to have higher vitamin D because there's more sunshine down there, but they're also outdoors more and they're also probably less concentrated in density. Do you think that, I'm just curious if you think that has any role. And also, do you think taking supplemental vitamin D is as good? I mean, I'm sure still it's good to do something, but is as good as actually getting the sunshine vitamin itself? So you asked some good questions. So I think there are multiple factors that affect outcomes. So, I mean, if you look in the world, there are certain countries, their mortality is exceedingly high, whereas in countries like Germany, it's exceedingly low. So I think there are a whole bunch of factors which influence outcome. And I think it's a healthcare priority to figure out what's going on. Why are some countries doing well and some doing badly. So we know, for example, that Spain and Italy 
the mortality is high. It just so happens that those two European countries, for reasons I don't really understand, have the lowest vitamin D levels. So there seems to be a correlation, not only in the U.S., but in Europe between vitamin D levels and mortality. The other is there have been prospective randomized trials in which patients are given vitamin D or placebo, and they've looked at the risk of developing influenza. And those studies have shown definitively if you treat people, and these are mainly during winter months where we have influenza, in a dose between 1,000 and 4,000, it decreases the risk of influenza and the duration of symptoms. So obviously, while being outdoors and having sunshine is good, it appears that vitamin D supplementation, particularly if you're old or you live in a northern country, has some benefits. The other thing which is interesting is that it seems that old people tend to make less vitamin D in their skin than younger people. So that would explain part of the age distribution. The other thing is African-Americans who have skin pigment make less vitamin D than light-skinned people, which may partly explain this racial difference. So I think it, it, it's something which you can't dismiss. And I think if you take low-dose vitamin D, it's likely helpful. It can't be harmful. Do you like a certain level? Do you measure in your patient's body? Like, is there a sweet spot? I, I would tell my patients between 40 and 60. I, I know sometimes other doctors, especially the holistic ones, recommend higher. I just worry about if it affects your calcium levels, if you, I mean, if somebody mega doses on that. I mean, do, do you follow their levels? So, I mean, I don't personally because it's not what I do, but in my reading, I think you want it above 40. So, I mean, if your levels are above 40, that's fine. But I think if it's below that, there's a, there's a place for vitamin D supplementation. Okay. What about melatonin? I find that very interesting, you know, because, uh, you know, we know people hear about melatonin for sleep, even though it does supposedly have immune function. So what, what do you have that in the regimen? You were yeah, so, milligrams. yeah, so that came as a surprise. So, you know, when we were looking at our original protocol for sepsis, we were looking for other molecules that may potentially be of benefit. And we came across melatonin. So as you correctly say, melatonin is made by this little gland in the brain and it regulates sleep. But melatonin is actually made by every organ in the body. It's actually made by your mitochondria, which are your energy powerhouses. And melatonin is the only, natural, the only naturally occurring mitochondrial antioxidant. So it prevents oxidative damage to the mitochondrion. It's very powerful. So it prevents damage to the mitochondria, which you require to make energy. It just so happens we just decided to add it to our protocol because we could. But then I discovered just serendipitously, I said that word really badly. Oh, no, that's very good. That, you had that nice South African accent. I like that. <laughs> is that melatonin actually, you know, you, you're not going to believe this, so you better sit down, has specific effects against COVID virus. It prevents viral replication. Oh, no. The stores are going to be empty soon of, of melatonin. <laughs> okay. It's truly astonishing is that there have been a few of these, you know, where they do studies looking at potential drugs which may affect the virus, and they came up with like six or ten, and melatonin was on the list. 
and it's, it, it, it appears to specifically interfere with viral replication again. So we added it because we thought it would be a benefit and were amazed to discover actually that there is even stronger biological plausibility to use it. Do you think with this regimen, I mean, again, this is all so new, but that, again, someone starts taking this, they find out right away that, you know, that they're it's very mildly symptomatic, but now with all the testing that they're positive or they're having, again, the milder symptoms, they start taking this. Do you think that it will lead to a milder course of the COVID, you know, again, depending on their other risk factors, you know, let's, let's say a younger person who's healthy overall, that they'll have a much a more milder course, or that's a little hard to say at this point. So, you know, that would be our expectation and our hope that, you know, that proactively doing these things to maintain your, your immune system as optimal as you can, making sure you're adequately hydrated, a, a, taking adequate nutrition, the hope is that this would actually mitigate against the virus. So if you become symptomatic, your symptoms will be a lot less and you'll be less likely to progress to the pulmonary phase. That's our expectation. Whether this is true or not, obviously we don't know and would need to be tested. These would, these would be great studies to do, you know, prospective studies, absolutely. Also along your mildly symptomatic patients, which you mentioned at this point, I, I think patients would, would have been admitted because you write that on the floor. You, you mentioned the medication enoxaparin. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. What, what is that for? Yes, so what we know and what we've discovered and what the literature shows is patients with COVID develop a hypercoagulable state. They tend to form clots. And basically, the activation of the immune system activates clotting. Some patients tend to have more activation of clotting than inflammation. So it, it, it seems to be a major component of this stupid disease. Hmm. You know, inflammation and activation of clotting. And we know from studies, for example, done in the Netherlands, that about 30% of patients admitted with COVID will develop a pulmonary embolus or other major embolic event. Oh, wow. And that's despite routine anticoagulation. Wow. So th this has often been overlooked. And, you know, many of the cases of sudden death are probably due to pulmonary embolus because, you know, people don't recognize it. So what right. we want to do is, you know, be proactive and aggressively treat them to minimize the risk of these complications. Is enoxaparin like heparin? Does the name sounds familiar, or is it? Yes. So enoxaparin is basically subcutaneous, long-acting heparin. So this is an injection. This is not an oral. No, this is injection. And the reason we chose it is that the alternative would be heparin, which you give as a continuous infusion. That requires monitoring and requires blood testing, and it requires much more diligence by the nurse. With Lovenox, it's a fixed dose. So you give it at a fixed dose and you don't really have to worry about monitoring. So it becomes much easier logistically to treat these people. How, how would this compare to, let's say, just taking um, like a baby aspirin or something? Like, why again? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, that, you know, obviously if you're at home, you can't take an anticoagulant. Right. So on my most recent version, I suggested maybe taking an aspirin. Okay. You know, whether it works or not, we don't know, but we absolutely know that COVID causes this hypercoagulable state, this tendency to form clots, 
aspirin tends to mitigate that. So I think it makes absolute sense to take aspirin together with the vitamin C and the vitamin D and the zinc. Okay. All right. Let's now move into probably the most, I'll, I don't know if I'll say controversial to me, it's exciting, your approach to treating a patient that's now developing shortness of breath, some degree of hypoxia, which is obviously very concerning in these patients. You know, they're now uh, admitted to a hospital, potentially being, well, I'm sure, like Boris Johnson in the, uh, in the UK. He was all of a sudden, they saw his oxygen levels going down. You know, he's short of breath. They're saying, oh my gosh, we're going to get that ventilator ready for him. Unfortunately, somebody in Britain says, you know what? Let's give Dr. Marrick a call before we, uh, we hook him up. And you suggest, again, putting, using IV methylprednisone, that's a type of cortisone or hydrocortisone, giving him ascorbic acid, three grams every six hours. And we'll talk about the, you know, why you decide to dose like that. And maybe some magnesium IV. These are kind of things that I do typically with patients who have severe chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. You came up with this based on your work before with sepsis. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Like why, you know, you think this is the, the way to, to prevent these now more difficult, more complicated patients from ending up on a ventilator? Yeah, so we developed this protocol purely by accident in 2016. So what, had, what happened then is we had a patient admitted to our ICU who had overwhelming sepsis. It was clear to us she was going to die. She had severe bacterial infection, which caused her to go into shock. Her kidney wasn't working. Her heart wasn't working. So I had previously read about the use of vitamin C, Dr. Fowler's work and Dr. Van Straten's work. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this. You know, it's, it was readily available in our pharmacy. This is FDA approved. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? This woman is going to die. And when you're faced with that situation, you have to say, you know, I got to do what I best I can do and think out of the box. So I decided to give her vitamin C. I wasn't sure in the dosing. So Dr. Fowler had reported on two different doses. So I decided I'd go zap in the middle. And I thought I would add hydrocortisone on the assumption that they would work together. Not really believing anything would happen. And the next morning, I was expecting her to be dead. When I walked in, she was sitting up in bed. She was awake and alert, and we extubated her. And it was probably one of the most profound moments in, in my career because I thought, what the heck happened? So she turned around, and it was truly astonishing. But, you know, it could have been, you know, just one, one you know, one. Right, right. Could have been just one isolated case. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this again. And the next patient, we did it, same thing. The next patient, the same thing. Wow. So it was at that time that we realized we were really onto something. And, you know, our publication, we, 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 we published the first 46 patients because it was reproducible time and time and time again. And we thought, you know, why delay? Why collect more patients? But I, I have to add, and it only became to me obvious afterwards, that we treated these patients early. So much like with COVID, where timing is essential, in bacterial sepsis, timing is essential. It's much like patients know if they have a heart attack, heart attack or a stroke, that time is important. 
it would be absurd for a patient to be treated for, for a stroke after 24 hours of symptoms. So we treated these patients early, and it was kind of obvious to me that that's what you needed to do. But unfortunately, when people try to replicate our study, they gave it exceedingly late. Often, they gave it as a Hail Mary when the patients were dying, and the results weren't as good. And I think that's the reason, and it's kind of obvious, I think, is that timing is really, really important, that it has to be given early in the disease. Um, so, you know, we've now treated over 1,600 patients. The, the response is reproducible time and time again. 1,600 patients with sepsis or with COVID? With sepsis. Okay. And, you know, it, we just, it, it's safe. We haven't seen the single side effect, and there are no side effects reported. So, you know, we know this works. The problem is that the studies that have tried to replicate what we've done haven't really replicated what we did and really weren't reflective of real-world experience. So that did create some of an issue. Yes. Now, when it comes to COVID, because of the very similarity between the two, we decided to to use the similar protocol. So as I said, the, 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 the initial protocol was for sepsis with overwhelming inflammation. So we now use it in the pulmonary phase of sepsis, which we know without question, there's no question of doubt, it's not debatable that these people have an overwhelming inflammatory response. It's just what it is. For interesting reasons, this virus triggers a violent inflammatory response. And so what we do is we use these two drugs to dampen down the inflammatory response. What we did with COVID is we decided to use a higher dose. And we did that because Dr. Fowler did a study in ARDS in which he used a higher dose. And he thinks you needed a higher dose to get into the lung tissue. Yeah, I like the higher dose, honestly, when I, when I use my own private practice, because I saw some of the other studies and early on, I thought it was low dose. And I said, wow, I wonder if that really works. But yeah, I, the kind of doses that you're recommending now, three grams every six hours, basically essentially 12 grams at least, I, I, I think that's a very good dose. Yes, and you know, it works. The important thing is it works together with the corticosteroids. They're both anti-inflammatory. They're both dampen down the inflammatory response. And in fact, we've shown this in a lab experiment done at ODU, which is around the corner. They did an experiment proving this, that the two work together and that the, the sum of the two is greater than you would expect. So they work synergistically. So that, that's what's important. Um, part of the problem was the WHO and the ATS and CHEST said you shouldn't use steroids which was a very bad mistake. It, it, yeah. I, like I said to you earlier on, I said, you know what, when I was treating AIDS patients with pneumocystis pneumonia, you know, you would think it's so anti you know, you know, against logic to give those patients steroids because their immune system is already suppressed, but it was the only thing in conjunction with the, you know, with the uh, Bactrim that got them, you know, off the respirators. Exactly. So, I mean, with PCP, it was the infl inflammation to the pneumocystis. 
and the, the, the combination of Bactrim and steroids decreased inflammation. It's not, it's not rocket science. I think what they were scared about is that steroids would increase viral replication. But we know by the time patients come to this stage, the, the viral replication has, if not ceased, has been reduced to a low level. And the patients are not dying from the virus. It's not the virus that's killing the patient. It's the host response. Yeah, I think you beautifully show that in that graph that you show in figure one in your paper. I think people have to see that. I think doctors have to see that. I just I think it's a game changer in approaching how to take care of these patients. Can I ask you this too? I know in some of the protocols that you've thrown in thiamine again. Any particular reason why? I mean, it was like part of your triad of uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. So you know, in terms of COVID, I'm not sure the role of thiamine. Okay. In terms of our um, sepsis protocol, we think that thiamine has a role together with ascorbic acid and steroids, it probably is less an important component. The reason we originally included it was it's one of the potential side effects of intravenous ascorbic acid is oxalate crystals or oxalate stones. It appears if you're thiamine deficient, it increases blood oxalate levels. So we put it in because, you know, we thought, you know what, it's safe. And we were at that point somewhat concerned about oxalate. So that's why we added it. Whether it's important or not, I'm not sure. I think in bacterial sepsis, yes. With COVID, I'm not so sure. So we've kind of de-emphasized it. But certainly it's safe. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the way you're putting it. All right, I want to move over to something that, again, is in your expertise which I would like to learn so much as far as being a you know, doctor, and I'm sure, again, patients will really appreciate this. I want to understand the use of the oxygen in these patients. Yes. And, and in fact, actually, the New England Journal just had a whole like, special case thing to train doctors on what's the best and safest ways. I mean, obviously, the whole end game is to avoid intubation, as, as you really you know, vigorously pronounced. But take me through it a little bit, too. Let's say a patient comes in, and their, their pulse ox is 85 and they're short of breath and they come to your hospital, what are you going to put in They're in the emergency room and, you know, you're trying to assess their overall condition? What would you typically do? Would you put them on like a, a low flow nasal cannula? I mean, what, what, what is your approach to the oxygen? Yeah. So, you know, the, the low oxygen levels in the lung are quite intriguing. It's a quite intriguing, and I'm not sure we completely understand what's going on in the lung. What many practitioners thought that this was a disease called ARDS, which stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. The treatment of ARDS is immediate intubation and high pressures on the ventilator. However, we now know categorically this is not ARDS. Although there are some experts and very high position experts who think this is ARDS, this is not ARDS. It's a completely different disease. That's important to understand. So it's such a fundamental concept because you have to understand the disease you're treating and you've got to treat patients for the disease they have, not for the disease you want them to have. So the important thing is this is not ARDS. 
And why patients' oxygen levels are so low is quite intriguing. And we think it's a combination of factors. It's more a blood vessel problem than a lung issue. So what happens is you get little clots in the blood vessels in the lung, and the blood vessels in the lung lose the ability to constrict and dilate so that the blood goes to inappropriate areas of the lung. So there's like a mismatch. Yes, exactly. So it causes severe ventilation-perfusion mismatch. That together, this, this microcirculatory problem is what we think causes the low blood oxygen levels. The other thing which is completely intriguing is patients tend to tolerate low oxygen levels quite well. So we measure, you know, we can measure other parameters to indicate whether there's enough oxygen going to the tissue, one of them being lactate. And if you don't have enough oxygen going to the tissues, lactate goes up. So what we found is these people have low oxygen concentration in their blood, yet their lactate levels are normal. So that means they're doing okay. So what we do is we give them oxygen, but we don't push the oxygen level high. We allow them to set around 90%, which most people traditionally would consider low. But what we want to do is give them some oxygen, but we don't want to further damage the lung with the treatment we're giving them. So if we think if you give them, we use what's called high flow. So this is a technique of giving oxygen through nasal cannulae. The advantage of that is patients find it quite comfortable. You know, being on a ventilator is a nightmare scenario. Using what's called non-invasive ventilation with a tightly fitting mask, patients do not like this. So what we do is we put them on what's called high-flow nasal cannula, and we aim for low oxygen saturations. We don't aim to normalize it. And the other thing which is fascinating, it's truly fascinating, is if patients lie on their belly, it tends to improve this oxygen ventilation mismatch. So patients actually lie on their bellies or on their side with their oxygen cannula and do surprisingly well. Do you put them like in a Trendelenburg, like meaning like their head is more than their feet? No. No? They lie flat. So they're lying they're flat. flat on the bed, but they're lying on their belly. So most people lie on their back. And actually your ventilation and perfusion mismatch becomes better if you lie on your belly. So what these people do is they, so it's called proning, but it's rather repositioning. So instead of making them lie on their back all the time, we allow them to lie on their side. And how long would they do that for? I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a belly sleeper. How, like, how long would they have to lay? So when you back? have that option versus being on a ventilator, let no, me no, tell I you. definitely would. I would definitely learn to lay on my stomach. But yes. how long would they have to do that for? Typically, like you know, like you know, we've hour? done it for three or four days, and patients seem. I mean, to the whole day. It. The whole time they're in the uh, in their bed. They're not, they're not lying all the time on their stomach because it's more repositioning. So they lie on their side, on the side and, and then on their belly, right, and not on their back. The other okay. side, rather yeah. than being on their back all the time. Yeah, Doctor uh, Mar, what do you think? Also, I mean, again, in this article that Doctor Levitin wrote about was interesting. You know, he he says that you know, again, COVID's typically we're calling it silent hypoxia, and he mentioned that the coronavirus. I, he, maybe he he read this somewhere that essentially attacks the lung cells that make surfactant. 
Have you heard that? Would you agree with that? Oh, my goodness. So, you know what? I have a list of very unusual therapies that people have proposed for COVID, and one of them is surfactant. So, I think surfactant is an end product. So, when you damage the lung and you damage the cells lining the lung, which makes surfactant, surfactant will be down. But that's not it's not the problem. It's an end result. The end result makes sense. Yeah. So I think if you treat them up front with diseases that prevent damage to the lung lining, you won't need surfactant. Whether surfactant is of benefit, you know, who knows? In adults, it's not been proven to be beneficial. It's been beneficial in kids who born early with pediatric respiratory distress. So unfortunately, so you know what I did this morning? It was kind of interesting. I was interested in how many papers have been published on COVID since January. Do you want to give a guess? Oh, gosh. Let's say, I would say, well, depends on when you say an article. It could be like, you know, just like, a lot of them are just quick little case reports, but I don't know, 500? So, you know, our papers, so what I'm talking about is medical publications. Many of them, these are EPUBs or quick releases that aren't actually published. The number is astounding, 152,500. Oh, my gosh. That's definitely, that can't be peer-reviewed. I don't think that's humanly possible. Yeah, so obviously many of these are not peer-reviewed. These, you know, there, there are many services now that will publish unpeer-reviewed yeah. papers. But the point is that there's such a degree of volume and information overload I mean, that's why we need the smartest doctor in the room. That's why we're doing this podcast. We, I, you know, when I seek out people that have unique experience and, and is perspective and are rigorous, you know, I, I don't want to be putting out there, you know, I, I, I honestly, I would not interview, do an interview on this, but for some holistic person that didn't have your kind of background, because I, I don't want to mislead anybody. And uh, although, as I said, in my own practice, I've used these, these uh, vitamins various things with reasonably good success. I'm extremely careful, especially in an acute pandemic, you know, to give people the best information possible. Uh, and what the issue too also, what do you think about, unless we, you mentioned like the Venturi mask, does that come into play where you have to go to that higher? So you know what, if Venturi is dating you and it dates me, so when I was a resident, probably the same time as you, we used to use Venturi masks. The problem is that it, there's limited amount of concentration of oxygen and it's also difficult to humidify. Yes. And it was a mask on the face. Right. The patients don't like stuff squishing their nose and no, squishing their don't. face. <laughs> so, you know, Venturi masks kind of date you and me because they're not really popular anymore. The, the, the thing that's coming to vogue is this high flow nasal cannula in which, you know, it goes in the nose, it's humidified, patients really tolerate it well. Oh, okay. Well, thank, well, thank you for updating me. I, I haven't been in an ICU, thank God, in many years. Uh, even though I treat asthmatics, unfortunately, with all the, the great therapies now, they, that has not happened since I was a resident or I'm dating myself 30 years ago. And, uh, um, you know, I just wasn't, Sure, you know, again, the, the other thing, too, I thought I saw this New England Journal article. Do they worry a little bit with the high flow nasal cannula about dispersing, um, you know, the uh, the virus aerosols versus low flow? Is there a difference? I, I thought that's what they, they were emphasizing. Yeah, so you know what? I mean, you have to be use common sense, actually. So, you know what? I mean, it may, we don't know for a fact. And a patient coughing or sneezing is much more likely to disperse these 
viruses than using high flow. So, you know, you can't completely eliminate it, but, you know, I think they're reasonably safe. And if you have an alternative of high flow versus putting someone on a ventilator, you know, I don't think anyone in the right mind would choose a ventilator. Yes. So there may be an increased risk, but you know what? You have to use common sense precautions. You know, you don't need to wear a spacesuit. You just need to wear a mask and, you know, wash your hands and wear gloves. Mm. And that, that, that will provide adequate protection. So I think the whole thing about, you know, aerializing is being blown out of proportion. Okay. There's certain, there's certain things we don't want to do. So, you know, we wouldn't want to use a nebulizer because that would just nebulize the secretions. So you want to just do common sense stuff? Yeah. I want to ask you one more thing on, um, oh, with medications. You know, again, when we're dealing with, quote, that cytokine storm, you know, obviously there's been so much, and you're, we're hearing, again, a lot of it's anecdotal because they really haven't been, and they're starting controlled studies, you know, but, you know, with things like remdesivir or, um, I mean, there's a couple of the other monoclonal antibody that are, have been used in the past for rheumatoid arthritis and things like that to essentially inhibit IL, I believe, IL-6 and IL-1. What, what's your experience with that? Do you, oh, and, the, and of course, the hydroxychloroquine, which is gone every which way from being a miracle to being now killing people. Just what do you feel about the medications? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting question, and I think it's the scientific answer. So, you know, we can look at chloroquine. The answer is we don't know. So the studies that have used it, and if you have a look at the most recent randomized controlled trial, they gave chloroquine after patients had been symptomatic for 17 days. Let me say that again, 17 days. Okay. So at that time, you're going to predict it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So we now know if you give chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine really, really, really late, where you pass the viral replicator phase, who cares? Right. But what we don't know is if it has a role really early up, up front. Mm-hmm. We don't know the answer to that. Or if it has a role in prophylaxis. So, you know, healthcare workers, Maybe if they take it, it will reduce their risk. We don't know that. So actually in India, it's really interesting. The Indian government had a mandate that all healthcare workers were to get hydroxychloroquine once a week because they thought it may prevent them getting COVID. So in terms of hydroxychloroquine, I think what we know is if you give it really, really, really late, it doesn't work. If it has a role early, we don't know. Yes, because it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times people would take that when they would go travel to Africa, I believe, or chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine to prevent malaria, right? And doesn't it have to do, I guess it must have something to do with the way it affects the red blood cells, right? And that maybe have something to do with the COVID also, the way the the red blood cells circulate. Do you think it has any role that way that it's... So it seems just by sheer coincidence that chloroquine actually has an effect on the viral replication again. It was on the so, viral replication, not on the red blood cells. Okay. No, so it actually affects intracellularly the ability of the cell to uncoat the virus. So it has a number of intracellular pathways that, again, interfere with viral replication. It also has some anti-inflammatory properties. Obviously, it's used for SLE and rheumatoid arthritis because of its anti-inflammatory properties. So it has these diverse actions which include anti-inflammatory and some antiviral properties. When it comes to remdesivir, we just don't know. 
But I think if it's going to have a role, it's going to have a role early. So that's why you need to distinguish the early viral replicative phase from the late pulmonary phase. Well, what do you think is the best thing for that, that cytokine storm phase, which is obviously probably the most dangerous? I mean, do you think the cortisone that you're giving, salumedrols, are good enough? Do you think they need, I think one of them is called toximablob. I can't even yeah. say it. So, you, you, yes, you're absolutely right. So there is an IL-6 inhibitor, which is a monoclonal antibody, which has shown some benefit, and it does make sense. So we had a patient who had a severe cytokine storm, and we were thinking of using it, but we decided, you know what? His biomarkers were going up. We said, we're going to increase the dose of steroid. And if he doesn't respond, then we'll give TOSI. It's called TOSI. And what happened is we increased the dose of steroid, and all his biomarkers came down, and he did really, really well. So TOSI does make sense, except it's really expensive. And it's hard to get. I mean, all these special compassionate use situations, right? I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, so it's, you know, it's big pharma. It's very expensive and difficult to get, and most patients won't be able to get it. So that's, that's why, you know, we've, we haven't needed to use it because I think if you follow their, their inflammatory markers, most of the time it comes down. If it's going up, that should alert you and you want to maybe increase the dose of steroid. Dr. Merrick, what percentage is just ballpark are you, that you'd be saying of your patients that have to end up being intubated in, in your hospital? Yeah, so we've treated about 40 in the ICU, and I suppose equal number on the floor. Out of those 40, maybe four or five required intubation wow. just because they wow. presented late or some of them deteriorate really quickly. So, mm-hmm. it was, you know, if, just because they get this overwhelming rapid storm. So we try and avoid intubation, but there is a small percentage who you have to intubate. But what you really want to do then is treat them gently on the ventilator and try to get them off as quickly as you can. And what will quickly probably be within like three or four days? I mean, some of these stories we're here in New York, people aren't for 20 days. So, you know, you, you're right. I have a colleague from Wisconsin who's just gone to New York because he felt compelled to do so. And he tells me it's tragic is that the people who stuck on ventilators for four or five weeks with absolutely, absolutely no hope of ever getting off the oh, ventilator. Gosh. Yeah, that is, that, is, that is a tragedy. And I uh, think that must be the worst way to die. I think yeah. oh, you die yeah. on a ventilator alone with no family. I think it's awful. That's, you know, that is why, honestly, this lockdown thing is working. I mean, when people hear, read, or see, and I, I think I, I have to credit TV because they, they see say that as alarmist, but when you see what's happening in the hospitals in New York and you see how unfortunately some people are dying or the end of their life, it will scare the bejesus out of you to, you know, to social distance and wear a mask and gloves all the time. Part of the problem is, you know, people were misled thinking that it just affects old people. Right. You want to bet there are people in their 30s and 40s who get this and die. Yes, we hear about them. Yeah, and you know, especially the healthcare workers who are probably getting a a high viral load, but it could happen to anybody. Yeah, so this is not something you take lightly. (laughs) You know, this is a a highly infectious disease that is high, high potential to kill. Dr. Merrick, before we get to the last thing, I also want to just get into one more thing too, about the radiology issues, you know, about getting a chest x-ray or a CAT scan. You know, some people have advocated also that, in fact, 
um, getting a CAT scan is more important than even doing, you know, serology testing or nasal swab testing. What, what, what's your, what, what do you see as the role as these diagnostic, you know, tests? Yeah, so I think that's silly. <laughs> um, yeah. Basically encapsulated. So patients with COVID have an absolutely typical stereotypic chest X-ray and CT mm. scan. You can look at the CT scan and without knowing anything else, you can say, that is COVID. And that's important because it's COVID, it's not AODS. However, by, you know, when patients are less ill, you can do a CT scan. However, once they're in the ICU, by getting CAT scans serves no useful purpose. It just, it just increases the risk of other people being exposed, the risk of transporting patients. The chest x-ray is so typical of COVID that you don't need to. The what is it, like that snowstormy kind of picture where they call, what they call ground glass? I mean, Yes, it, it's very typical. It, it causes what's called um, multifocal, widespread, bilateral ground glass opacification. And ground glass is a very important term because ground glass we find, find in lung diseases which are inflammatory. So there's a group of interstitial lung diseases called interstitial pneumonitis. Right. It's due to inflammation of the lung, and it causes ground glass opacities. There are very few other diseases which do it. So it's very stereotypic of COVID. When you look at an x-ray like that, it, it looks like you're just like not looking at a clear, dark x-ray, right? It looks like, it just looks like, like when they, cause when they use that term ground glass, it's like, it's like looking through a window that's just kind of foggy, right? Exactly. So that's why ground glass, the description is very apt because it looks ground glassish as if you're looking through ground glass, which is very different from a a typical ARDS or pneumonia, which is a much denser consolidation. Those are like a huge snowstorm whiteout. I get it, right? So there's no question the CT scan is absolutely typical, but you don't need to get a CT scan to make the diagnosis. All right. Well, I have to tell you, Dr. Wright, this has been amazing. I, you've been fascinating to talk with. You've been wonderful to communicate with. My last question to you as we, we conclude here, what do you see happening in this pandemic? Are we going to find a way to make this a more treatable infection? Are we going to be social distancing through the next decade? Will this end only like the polio epidemic with a foolproof vaccine? What, what's, your, what's your vision of what... Yeah, so, you know, I feel not that optimistic today. Oh, no. (laughs) So, you know, firstly, you know, we shouldn't be talking about vaccines. I think they shouldn't talk about vaccines. Why? Just, you know, first, I mean, they've been looking for a vaccine for malaria, a vaccine for Ebola, a vaccine for HIV. We don't have one. So if we could ever find a vaccine that works, That would be wonderful. But I think we shouldn't base assumptions on that. We're actually going to have a vaccine that's effective. It gives us false security, which we just don't know. And if by some miracle there was a vaccine that worked, it's 18 months away. So it's not relevant to solving the issue now. And I think by talking about a vaccine gives people this false sense of security and hope. So I don't want to sound unhopeful, but you know what? You have to put your eggs in the right basket. So I'm not too optimistic about a vaccine. In, well, terms, of, in terms of specific antiviral drugs, 
I suppose much like HIV, where we started off with no drugs, and now we can treat it really well, I suspect that we will develop antiviral drugs. How effective they are, I don't know. And I think we shouldn't hold our breath either. So I think we have to do common sense stuff. I think we, you know, life is, has changed forever. And I think social distancing and personal hygiene and hand washing should never change. I think you have to do common sense stuff. And the way people were aggregating on the beach like nothing ever had happened is truly perplexing. This is serious. So, you know, my hope is that, you know, with social distancing and with good medical care, you know, this will come under control. Whether we're going to have a second wave or whether we're going to have a cyclical wave, you know, who knows? You know, who knows? I think nobody knows. So, you know, we shouldn't talk about the future because you can't predict the future. So, you know, I think we have to live in the reality we have now, use common sense strategies. And, you know, I see people driving around in their car with a mask on. Clearly, they don't understand the whole issue of, <laughs> of wearing a mask. It's the truly most astonishing thing. And some of them actually have gloves on. So you find a single person driving in his car with gloves and a mask. And clearly, there's a failure of communication. Well, there he's very, uh, <laughs> very prepared. You know, I'm going to end this with also, you know, I'm a student of immunology. And I, one of my favorite immunologists of the past was Louis Pasteur. And he had a saying, actually, it was on his deathbed, um, it's been said, that he told one of his colleagues that in the end, you know, he was one of the great discoverers of vaccines, obviously, you know, for rabies, that he, but he said in his supposedly dying breaths, if it's true, that to his colleagues, it's the seed, it's the soil, not the seed. You know, and in, in translating, that means, you know, about that, you know, any type of, quote, seed, like a virus or things that attack us, can only set in depending on the soil that's there, which I like to, like to think of as our immune system. And I think one of the things that you have really brought to light is that by taking some of these steps, like using certain vitamins and supplements, that you can at least hopefully try to keep your immune system as strong as and healthy as possible. And I think that's an important takeaway from this. But again, Dr. Merrick, I want to thank you for taking the time in your super busy schedule, dealing with your critical patients and giving us your fascinating approach to uh, ameliorating and treating the coronavirus. Thank you so much today. Thanks, Dean, and thanks for your, your really good questions and your insight. Thank you. I, I hope we get to stay in touch. If I have a coronavirus patient, I hope I can get you on speed dial. <laughs> I, hope, I hope the rest of your week is better. <laughs> yeah, stay healthy and stay safe. Eh? Try. Okay, be well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.